I'd like to continue this message and wrap it up today on part two of Jesus cleanses his father's house. Jesus cleanses his father's house. We're basically going through the gospel of John, the fourth gospel, the evangelist, the apostle. He is so evangelistic as the Spirit of God has inspired him to be moved to write these wonderful words and give us this, this account of our Lord and Savior. The theme, of course, is, and through John, is that Jesus is deity. He is God in flesh. He is God in flesh. He is God. The Word became flesh in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched His tent. And we beheld His glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I mention that verse because the story that we're at of Jesus cleansing the temple <clears throat> has a lot to do with God's glory not being um, lifted up. Christ, uh, Christ deals with that. He comes and does His Father's business. So God is not being glorified in the temple. And we will see that the temple has become a place of merchandise rather than a place of prayer. And this is what our Lord comes to deal with in action. You know, the primary truth taught in the cleansing of the temple here fulfills a messianic prophecy by restoring true worship. I emphasize that. True worship of the Father. And Jesus our Lord says this in John 4, in, in uh, verse 23 and 24, we're moving in that direction, but uh, God willing, we'll be looking at this as a wonderful verse of Scripture, and He's actually talking to the woman at the well and evangelizing her and giving uh, her the, the wonderful good news. He is the good news. He's given of Himself. And it all began with basically Him asking the question, Give me a drink of water. Give me a drink. And then the revelation is later on, the conversation goes on, but in verse 23 and 24, Jesus tells her, and you've got to keep in mind, this, this is a, basically a, a woman that's had many husbands. Her life has been a train wreck. Her life has been a wreck. And she's a prostitute, basically. Think of this. The Lord tells her, but the hour... The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, Jesus says. He gives us a wonderful definition here of who God is. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. What a revelation! What a revelation. And isn't it wonderful how our Lord gives this revelation to a woman at the well? That's so needy. And then she turns out to be a great evangelist in Samaria. Now, keeping that before us, this is the primary truth that's taught in the cleansing of the temple. It's about worship and it's how Jesus is going to cleanse His Father's temple. Way off too often in our time, Jesus is seen 
as you well know, in our society, especially in America, and Jesus is portrayed as a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And let me say in parentheses here, according to the Scripture, He is gentle, He is meek and mild. Jesus said they invites people to come to, unto Him, all you that labor and heavy laden, for I am meek and mild in heart, gentle in heart. But that's only one side of Christ. Jesus is full of grace and compassion. And most of the time, all the way through the Gospels, He is shown being shown compassion to those that are lepers, to those that are sick, uh, to the Gentiles. He reaches out and to the lost because He came to seek and save that which was lost. That's His mission. But also, we cannot jump over the parts where Jesus is seen and through the revelation of Scripture that He is all-powerful, all-authority, and holy. Let me say this also. As I mentioned that Jesus is gentle, He's meek and mild, yet too often He's pictured also as weak and wimpy and very timid. And that is not the picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a wrong and distorted view of the character of Jesus. You know, the real Jesus of the Scripture is displayed for us very vivid and clear. It is so different than those who portray Him as weak and wimpy. And by the way, that is far from the way His character really is. Especially that's found in Scripture. Scripture gives us how Christ really is. And here in this story, we see His character displayed. In Scripture, His perfect character above all is holy. Christ is holy. He is absolutely holy. And separate. And different. Perfect. Without sin. No flaw in Him whatsoever. Isn't that wonderful how our Lord is? He's holy, but He's not weak. He's strong. And when His Father and, and when His Father is dishonored, especially within the temple, in a place of worship, and when the honor of God was at stake, Jesus displayed at times a very holy violence. Holy violence. He's aggressive here. As it's seen in Scripture, He's zealous. He's passionate. And we're going to see what He's really passionate about. It's a holy zeal. It's a holy zeal, which is, in essence, a zeal of divine fire, as Keith has already brought out this morning. His hot, red hot fire for God's glory. And that's what we need to focus on. That's what He's zealous about. The glory of God. And he comes to the temple as he goes to Jerusalem and he sees a place, that it, the temple that's supposed to be a place where God is to be honored and glorified and worshipped for His glory and yet it's turned into a place of merchandise, a marketplace. And later on as he cleansed the temple uh, at the end of his ministry, he calls it a den of thieves. They have made it into a den of thieves. 
And we see here, Jesus' uh, zeal for God's glory, a zeal for God's glory, which is taught, by the way, as Jesus taught His disciples how to pray. And how did He begin? Our Father, which art in heaven. And how did He begin that? Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is the summation of the glory of God. God's glory. We see this all the way through Scripture that God is to be glorified because God is the thrice holy God and revealed into three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Jesus had a perfect holy zeal for God's glory and the cleansing of the temple. That's, this is the reason why cleanses the temple because it's desecrated and they polluted it. And Jesus demonstrates in His action by holy passion of His, his passion for true and pure worship of the Father. And it pained His heart. It pained His heart to see this. Therefore, we see the zeal in operation. Now, here in our text in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, if you're not there, please turn with me there as we look at this awesome story of the Son of God, how He would demonstrate His holy zeal. He would demonstrate it. He just doesn't talk about it. He demonstrates it in action to cleanse His Father's house. And He cleanses it. He cleanses it. And I'm going to read chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse 13 through 22. I'd like to read the text, and then I'd like to go and we'll look at the, explaining the text and see what the text is saying. And then I'd like to give an exhortation at the last in the application. Verse 13, hear the word of the living God. And the word of God says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of merchandise. And then the disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the Jews answered and said to him, What, what sign do you show us to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken Forty-six years to build this temple. And you and, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. We'll stop right there. Let's bow with me please in a moment of prayer as we seek our Lord's face within this hour of worship as we hear God's word expounded on this wonderful text our 
Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You. And we thank You today, Lord, that You are full of compassion and gracious. But everything about You, Lord, is absolutely holy. Your grace is holy. Your mercy is holy. Your patience is holy. Everything about You is holy, Lord. Holiness unto the Lord. And we say, hallowed be Thy name. And help us, O dear Lord, to truly, truly understand what it means to worship You in spirit and truth. Lord, we need the help of Your Holy Spirit to help us. And just not in this hour, but Lord, every day when we worship You in our time before You, as we live and breathe and have our being in You, Lord, that's our chief end, is to glorify You, to worship You, to enjoy You forever, to delight in You. And Lord, we need so much within this desperate, desperate hour in which we live. A divine intervention of Your holiness. A divine revelation that comes from Your words of Your majesty your holiness, a restoration, a revival, Lord, within the, the church, Your people. And Lord, I pray that You would start with us. As David said, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And Lord, I pray that the same prayer as the psalmist cried out in song as he said and asked the question, will You not revive us again? that Your people may rejoice in You. Show us Your mercy, Lord, and grant us Your salvation. And Father, we ask this, lead us to the rock, Jesus Christ, who is higher than I. Hide me behind the, the cross today, Lord, and may Your Word go forth in power and truth. And Lord, may it be received with thanksgiving and fall on good ground and so it may give and bear fruit. For your glory and honor. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 13 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now this is the first of the, the three Passovers, which John, the Apostle, mentions in the Gospel here, his Gospel. It's found in verse 13, and then again, see that it's found in chapter 6, verse 4, and then in chapter 11, verse 55, speaks of the Passover. And if you notice in the latter there, Jesus perfectly always attended the, the Passover feast to celebrate the Passover. He kept the law to its, to its tea. He fulfilled the law. He never missed the Passover. He never missed the feast. And he always kept it. The Passover actually commemorates the deliverance of the Jews from the slavery of Egypt. When the angel of death actually came, and God basically gave instructions of to slay a lamb. Slay this lamb. And shed its blood. And take the blood and spread it on the doorpost of each of the houses. 
And they were sprinkled with blood according to the Old Testament Scripture in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23 through 27, that God gave instruction. And as we know, as we see, Jesus Christ is God's Lamb. He is the Lamb of God. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. And He is the one that fulfills this as He comes to die upon the cross of of Calvary. And His blood is shed once and for all. And a great transition takes place. The temple is no longer needed to offer up sacrifices and animals to be slain. Jesus is God's Lamb and He is slain because He is God's Lamb and He's led like a lamb to the slaughter. He is that picture. He is actually, if you read in Revelation, He is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? That this was already in the plan of God's decree. That God had already decreed this before anyone ever existed, before God created man, before He even created the world. This was in God's decreed plan. That Jesus is that Lamb that is slain for the foundation of the world. And this will be the song through the ages, by the way. When we reach heaven, the song of the Lamb, the song of the redeemed, all because of His precious blood that He shed on Calvary's cross to save us from our sins because He that knew no sin became a sin offering that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He covers us with His righteousness. That's the gospel. There's a great exchange. He takes our sin and we take His righteousness. Jesus took our place as the substitute. That's the gospel. As the substitute Lamb of God. So here, this is all you will see that Jesus in every step of God's sovereignty and through His three years of ministry, from the first cleansing to the last cleansing of the temple, and then eventually when He's crucified. But He fulfills the law in every way. In verse 13, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem. And this is where the Passover feast is. is. And so Jesus journeys there as tens of thousands. Josephus literally says there's so many people, it's, we don't know uh, actually the number, but there was literally in tens of thousands of people there that came to celebrate this great feast. And usually... Many hundreds of lambs would be slaughtered between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. on the night of the feast. So the Jewish pilgrims um, crowded into Jerusalem. There was pilgrims that journeyed along for this greatest of Jewish feast. So then in verse 14 we read, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers, doing business. Interesting. Here they are doing evil business, and Jesus comes to do holy business. Jesus comes to do His Father's business. We looked at this last Lord's Day, but we get a small little window from the Scriptures that when Jesus was 12 years old, He's at the temple, and He's basically asking them questions. But here, He's engaged in His ministry, and He comes to do ministry. And... This is actually the second miracle that's recorded. The first miracle we looked at, that He changes the water into wine. Here is a second miracle. And some people say, well, Pastor, I don't see a miracle here. But actually, it is a miracle of profound power that Jesus drives out tens of thousands of people. Animals, 
the money changers. He turns over the tables and the, the money goes everywhere. And, and, and actually, let's read it. Verse 14, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And Jesus discovers evil in this temple. He found the temple being desecrated. He found the temple being polluted because of men's evil heart. Now, I read this last Lord's Day, but I want to read it again because this is actually what was happening to the T. If you read Isaiah chapter 1, because it tells us in detail they're actually the hearts. This is a place of worship. And they come there and they have desecrated God's house. And verse 12 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, when you have come to appear before me and who has required this from your hand to trample my courts. They were trampling the courts of the Lord there. They were trampling and polluting the temple. And then he says this, Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity. Listen to that. God in His holiness, I cannot endure iniquity. I cannot endure it. And the sacred meeting, your new moons and your appointed feast, and my soul hates, they are all a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. Listen, they're very religious. They're even praying. I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And then he pleads and gives the invitation, wash yourselves. He gives the remedy, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings before, from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for, for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. That is basically what is happening here. It's being desecrated. There is, it's, these people are very religious. And, and in a sense, this is a preview of judgment as we will see. And the judgment comes to the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. Isn't it interesting? They were looking for a Messiah, supposedly in their mind, to bring judgment to the Gentiles. But here, the judgment begins in God's house first. Here at the temple. And he found in the temple, it was being desecrated, a place of holy worship, a sacred place being disrespected and violated. It was the courts of the Gentiles that a lot of this was taking place. The outer courts within the temple, where so much commercialism was taking place. There was regular commercial marketing within its walls. The worshipers needed animals for the sacrifices, oxen, sheep, and doves, and it was these money changers that was taking advantage and selling these animals for the sacrifices, and usually there was defected and they knew that, and then people had to come back and buy more. So the money kept piling up. It was, it was, a, it was a, display, a display of greed, I should say. It was horrific what was happening in the name of God. And don't we have the charlatans around today? Man's nature has not changed. Greed still corrupts the men, men's hearts today. And we can find this in our hearts at times if we're not careful 
But that's why we need to ask God to search our own hearts. Greed comes up. And that greed comes from a corrupt heart. That greed is the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. But here it's in the temple. But don't we see this today? Turn on the television. You don't have to go far. You see these televangelists begging for money, 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 and taking widows' money, people's money, poor people's money, and they're living in mansions. Even some have jet planes and airports, all in the name of the one that didn't have a place to lay his head. This is Christ. He sees these worshipers. You know, the worshipers, they needed these oxen, sheep, doves, incense, meal, wine, so forth. There was so much being sold, oil, salt. It goes on and on. And other items for sacrificing and offerings. And the pilgrims from foreign nations would come in and, and, and they needed the money exchanged because they would come in with different kinds of money and they had to be exchanged and then taxed. They were taxed to the hilt. And at some point in the history of this temple, I'd like you to notice, it. We, we, you won't see it. How did all this take place? Did God's people fall into this overnight? No. Intertestament period, 400 years of silence. A lot was taking place, a lot of corruption. We don't know exactly when or about the Pharisees and Sadducees has formed, but somewhere within a 400 years, man has to have a religious system, a religious meeting. And here comes the Pharisees, and here comes the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, and men's religion. And they added to God's law by their traditions, and added to it and corrupted it, and they departed from God's word, God's law, because they added to it. But when God last spoke in the book of Malachi, somewhere in between those 400 years, this temple became desecrated, and the desecration basically was at the feet of the Sanhedrin, the people that basically put Jesus Christ to death, and many in the early church. Corruption and religion set into the temple. And I say religion. The priests decided to take advantage of the market themselves instead of letting the retailers on the outside reap all of the profits. But here's the priest began to set up the booths. The priest within the courts of the Gentiles to lease out space to the outside retailers. These often turned out to be family members and home of the booths or space, which was apparently the high priest, whose name was Annas. Annas. We see him in the Gospels. He's a wicked high priest. The outer courtyard of the temple was the very worship center for the Gentiles and which was filled with the booth-like spaces which where worshipers could find any kind of service that they needed. And so the atmosphere was one of commercial traffic and commotion and not of true worship and prayer. A lot of commotion. 
a lot of traffic. And, and, and I like to say this again. We don't know exactly the, the amount of people that was here, but there was there about the tens of thousands. A mass of crowd, a mass of humanity, a masses of people. And that's why it's a miracle. Jesus literally drives all these out by His power. It's incredible. The prophecy is so true. And we looked at this again. I like to read it again. Go to Malachi chapter 3. This is so significant because the Lord suddenly comes to His temple. He comes to His temple. Malachi chapter 3. It bears repeating again, doesn't it? Because we need to get this. Behold, I send my messenger. And he's talking about John the Baptist right there. But he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Jesus fulfills this. This is a prophecy of, of the Messiah. And then it says, Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And who, But who can endure the day of his coming? Good question. And another question on top of another question. And who can stand when he appears? And notice how he will cleanse. For he is like a refiner's fire. He's like a launderer's soap. He will sit it as a refiner or a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver and they will, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. And I will come near you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness. Notice what it says here. Against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who, are turn, who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Everything there in that word, Jesus fulfills. He comes to cleanse the Father's house. He cleanses it. He cleanses it. Powerful prophecy. So it gives us the details. So, look with me now to verse 15 through 17. We see Jesus' right of authority to cleanse the temple. He has the right. He has the right to cleanse it, doesn't he? He has the authority. Can you imagine the commotion and the dust storm rising from the temple courts that day? Notice what it says. When he had made a whip of cords, a scourge of cords, some translations say, he drove them all out of the temple. He drove them all out. Now, it didn't say some, all of them, all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money changers' money, uh, the changers' money, I'm sorry, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Can you imagine? All these animals were running loose everywhere. Ox, oxen, and, and, and doves actually flying about, and, and everything was really... Jesus did everything orderly. There's no disorder on Jesus' part. But the evil here, he basically overturns 
the tables full of money, coins, changers, money, and overturned the tables. He was enraged with a holy anger, folks, because people was profiting, these priests was profiting from the poor worshipers that was running for their lives. Keep this in mind also. Stephen Lawson says, one man did this. A one-man SWAT team. Isn't that incredible? Tens of thousands of people. One-man SWAT team. Christ comes in, makes a scourge of cords, and some people think, how did he do that? Because he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He has the authority. He has the passion, the holy passion for God's, His Father's glory. He makes a scourge of cords because... There was ropes there everywhere to drive the animals. So he makes this and he drives them out. And there's, again, nothing in Scripture that he beat people with the scourge of cords. He ran them out. But this is a display of his holiness. This is a, that he's demonstrating in his father's house. He ran out, he ran them out, literally, tens of thousands, because the Father's house was desecrated. It's supposed to have been a place of true worship and prayer. At the end, again, at the cleansing, when He cleanses again, He says to them, you've made it a den of thieves. We must see something here, folks. And it's this. Jesus' anger <clears throat> is not bad temper. There's no bad temper in Jesus here. He is sinless. Or, quote-unquote, some people say a sinful anger like ours when we do lose our temper. We become angry because many times when we are wronged, right? I've been there, haven't you? I've been wronged and I've become very angry. But Jesus wasn't like this. It's not bad temper because He's wronged. There's nothing selfish here. He has a perfect Holy zeal that's eaten him up because he has a zeal for God's glory. Jesus got angry here when his father was being wronged. Make no mistake about it, this beloved is this is a perfect, holy, divine, righteous anger. It's a preview of God's holy wrath. It's a a small preview of what would happen when he comes back the second time. And he's going, and and it's going to be far greater, on on a far greater scale, when he comes back in power and glory with all of his holy angels and the saints in heaven. And then he's going to lay waste the nations because the Bible says a sword would come out of his mouth. It's symbolic, but it basically says all he's got to do is speak the word, and he's going to lay nations flat. And slaughter them. So many times we don't see this side of Jesus because it's not preached. Because so many times, <clears throat> speaking of preachers, are so afraid of losing people in their congregation because God, Jesus, is such a holy Christ. And He's He levels it, He sets the record straight. He comes to deal with sin. 
But one day in Scripture, He's going to deal with it once and for all, as Psalm 2 says. And if you read Psalm 2, let me read just a portion of it, and that's exactly what Psalm 2 is all about. It's about His second coming in power and in glory. And notice what it says. I'll read the whole thing. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Notice that. Together. Just like they did at Babel. Against the Lord and against His anointed. His anointed is the Christ. That's Christ. Saying, let us break their bonds into pieces and cast away their cords from us. What's God's response? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And then God says this, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Messianic prophecy. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise. And listen to this. This is the conclusion of this psalm because now he's given exhortation of repentance, basically. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. There's worship. Least he be angry. And you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. And blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. The blessing comes as we believe the gospel and put our trust and repent of our sin. We do not want to be under the fury of Almighty God in His judgment and when He pours out His wrath upon the nations. And this says it right here. Even when His wrath is kindled but a little... You perish in the way. Any wonder why God took His Lamb, His only one and Son, and He died on the tree? We see the great love of God, don't we? But there's another side of it. We see God's anger against sin. Red hot anger against sin. And He laid it on His Son. He, in in Scripture, in Isaiah 53, says, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him, because of your sin and my sin that was laid upon Christ. All that Christ endured is because of the sin of Adam that we bear. That's why the Scriptures basically make it clear, it's Jesus or hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. There's not a thousands of ways as we hear out in the world, this, this religion, that religion, and you could get to, we all get to God, we're good friends. No, 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 no. Hey, the Bible says there's only one way. But aren't you glad there's a way? Jesus is that way. Jesus is not displaying 
any sinful anger here. It's a holy, righteous, divine anger of holy wrath. And it's a preview of the judgment that will come in the future. But there is also a judgment that was fulfilled here because this particular temple here was the temple that was basically put together and put up that took, it says it here in the scriptures, it took them what, 46 years to build? That's what the text says, isn't it? And that's how many time, years it took. It took them 46 years to construct it and build it. It was the temple of Herod. And they were still working on it, even to the time of destruction in 70 AD when that prophecy was fulfilled and Jesus said that destruction would come place. He, he spoke of it. Not one stone of it will be left behind. It will be all put to waste and destroyed. And that's, it happened. But that was even a preview of the judgment to come in the future. Oh, I'm telling you, beloved. Jesus had a passion for God's glory. Let's keep that before us. Jesus prays later in John 17, 1 and 2. Listen to the words here. This is called the Holy of Holies in the Gospel of John. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven and said... Father, the hour has come. This is right before He goes to the cross. The hour of His death. And listen to what He prays. Glorify Your Son. Glorify Your Son that Your Son also may glorify You. See, He's one with the Father. And then He says, as You have given Him authority, there's the authority, authority over some flesh? No. All flesh. Jesus has authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him there's right there the doctrine the great doctrine of election Matthew 28:18 we've been looking at the great commission Jesus says again after his resurrection by the way as we've been looking at this at Burt Parsons discipleship Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Heaven and, and on earth, both rims, both spears. So this is the authority which Jesus exercises and demonstrates in the temple. He drives them out, all of them out. Folks, it's because it's the holiness of God. His Father and worship was at stake. Jesus took furious action. He was aggressive but it was perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. Look at verse 16. He said to those who sow doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Quoted from Psalm 69.9 to indicate that Jesus would not tolerate any irreverence whatsoever toward God. Jesus had an all consuming fire and zeal for God's glory. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Scripture says. Paul even quotes that in Romans 15.3. That that Scripture indicates that it's a messianic nature that the psalm had for the early church's will. Now, very quickly, look at verses 18 through 22. There's a lot here. We see in these verses the second way that John demonstrates Christ as deity as the Son of God in the account of the temple cleansing was to show His power and death through the resurrection. That was the point. 
that Jesus would show and demonstrate His power over death through the resurrection. And only God has this authority. Only God has this right. Verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to Him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Always a sign. Always a sign. Huh. You know, these practices have been going on a long, long time in the temple. When Jesus sets things right, He set it right. And by the way, when He comes back the second time, He's going to set it right. I tell people, you know, everything's wrong until Jesus sets it right. Now, according to the religious people here, the crowd, it's interesting. It's like all of a sudden Jesus became the bad guy. In other words, when Jesus removes the evil and corrupt practices that we wrong, it's because it's all based on the traditions of men and not God, not God's Word. And Jesus is seen as being wrong. And that's basically why they come to Him and say, what sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, who do you think you are to do this? Who do you think you are? What right do you have? You know, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way which seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. Death. We don't know our way. We can't find our way. I have so many people I've heard say from the past, I'm searching, I'm searching the truth. I'm trying to find it. I've had people say, I'm trying to search it within myself. Oh, they'll find a dead end street there. I'm trying to find myself. You got people, we got an identity crisis today. People don't even know their identity. They don't even know whether they're male or female. There's a way which seems right to man, but the end is death. Jesus backs that up in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. This is powerful words, folks, but I'm telling you, we better heed to what Jesus says here in Matthew 7. He says this in verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are, what? Many who go in by it. Many! Because narrow is the gate... And difficult is the way which leads to life, but there are few who find it. And later on, Jesus says in the other gospel that many will even strive to enter in and not be able to. It's not that God is trying to withhold, but the way is so narrow, and people, most of the world, and which Jesus says is going into the way of destruction, right into the pits of... And not only the pit at the grave, but right into hell itself. But there is a way. Jesus is that way. So the Jews, in verse 18, answered and said to him, What sign do you show us? Always a sign. Thinking they're in charge. In other words, what? We're the ones in charge here, buddy. That's what they're saying. Let's put it in our vernacular, in our words today. 
Who, who in the world do you think you are? See, that shows you they had no idea who He is. They didn't know who Jesus was. What gives you the right to do what you've just done? Running out people like this and turning over the, the, the tables and changers and running out thousands of people. Who do you think you are? Well, beloved, let me say this. This is an act of cleansing of the temple, right? And there was great ramifications for Jesus. It was clearly taught from the Old Testament Scriptures that when the Messiah comes, He would correct the misguided worshipers in Israel. A prophecy is given on this. Listen to this. Zechariah 14.20 says, In that day, holiness unto the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Now, he's talking about the second event, but this also can apply in some sense to the first advent. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Verse 21. Yes, notice this. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And in that day there shall no longer be a, a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And the ESV translation says it like this, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. A Canaanite, basically, going through the book of Joshua, would be seeing that. As God's people, Israel, goes and is led to the Lord and the Lord fights for them and they take over the land of Canaan. The Canaanite was identified, used as a figure for the morally and spiritually unclean. And before Israel conquered the promised land, the vile, corrupt Canaanites inhabited it until God judged them and spewed them out. The land was so corrupt that God spewed them out. Folks, I'm telling you, that's where we are in America. This is happening. Just read Romans chapter 1. Judgment is here. So the term here became a proverbial in Israel for morally degenerate and people that were ceremonially unclean. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. He gives them an answer. And in three days I will raise it up. You know what's interesting? That is trial and authorities charge Jesus with making threatening statements against the temple. Go with me to Mark 14. I want you to see this. Scripture interprets Scripture, doesn't it? And I'm so glad it does. But we must also see it in its context. Look at Mark 14. Look at verse 57. Let me back up. Look at verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, but Peter followed him at the distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat within the servants and warmed himself at the fire, and the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Notice what it says in verse 57. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. See, they used that against him even at his trial. And then it says in verse 59, But not even then did the testimonies agree. 
Well, it doesn't, because they're lies. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? And notice what Jesus did. But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus then answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Wow. They had no idea who he was. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, after Jesus said that, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy? What do you think? And they all condemned him to be the deserving of the death. And some of them began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And other officers struck him with the palms of their hands. This is the son of the living God. But this is all ordained of God because he was God's lamb. Even though they will be responsible for their sins on the day of judgment, God had decreed this. If they didn't, if they did know, Paul says, if they did know who Jesus really was, they would have never crucified him. But they didn't know. It was all in God's sovereign plan. What about this sign? Give us a sign. Well, let's look at the sign real quick. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Always a sign? <laughs> look at this. All, you see this all the way through the Gospels, folks. Look, look, look at verse 38. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees, there they are again. It's always these religious Pharisees and scribes, the self-righteous, and saying, Teacher, we, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Jesus basically tells about this. He he explains it. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. And she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. <laughs> and think of it. The judgment came on them in a powerful way. Well, the point is verse 22, back to John. I've got I to land this plane. The point was, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and Verse 21, he was talking about he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's important, isn't it? The temple being of his body. And that he had said to them that they, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. There's the written word and there's the living word right there. They believed the written word, the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they believed in what Jesus said. But it didn't, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that. They didn't get it until after his resurrection. After he died. Because everyone fleed for their lives, was scared. Well, what does this have to do with us? 
What would, would be the end of the ungodly? Turn to 2 Thessalonians. We see it. I'm telling you, this is so powerful when we see this and this speaks of His, his second coming. But 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1 speaks in detail. Notice what it says. In verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. See, God, vengeance is the Lord's. Christians are being persecuted. And Paul here is exhorting them. And he says, to give, and to give you who are troubled rest with us in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, and it is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels. In verse 8, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with the everlasting destruction. That doesn't sound like annihilation to me. From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, who believe, must believe the Scriptures, must believe the Lord, because our testimony among you was believed, Therefore, we also pray always pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all his the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, and that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and in you and Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's so loaded. This text is speaking of God's final judgment and glory. When He comes, the day when Christ comes in power and glory, He brings retribution and ruin for all unbelievers. But those who believe have a great reward in heaven. You must believe the gospel. And Christ's great glory is displayed. The result will be rest and relief for those believers and all glorious privileges of sharing in His glory. In that day, when He comes, He will be glorified in His saints to be admired among all those who believe. Those who believe. Go with me very quickly to <clears throat> Peter. It's a lot here. Peter, first Peter chapter 4. Now it's the church. There, then it was the temple. Now we are the body of Christ. Now we are the body of Christ, the believers. What's God going to do? God's going to clean house once again. He's going to clean His house. He's going to clean up His bride. He's going to clean up... Why? Because there's a marriage feast to the Lamb that's coming, folks. And Jesus will have a clean bride. And it says in verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? For those who do not believe. And then it says, he says this, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wow. It's incredible. But he does save us. Romans 10 Go quickly to Romans 10. It tells us about believing God. 
desires repentance. And by the way, if you're not an, if you're not able to repent within your power, and you can't, I can't, we can't, we can't do that within our power. That's why God gives us with faith and repentance. Faith is turning toward God. Repentance is turning against sin. Folks, we don't have power to do neither. The Holy Spirit must give this to us in regeneration. And He desires to do that as we come to Him. And notice what He says in chapter 10. (laughs) It's interesting, in verse 2, I bear them witness that they have zeal, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You know, man's righteousness and God's righteousness are on two different levels completely. See, somehow people got this idea and this notion that at the judgment, oh, God's going to have good, our good deeds here and our bad deeds over here and weigh it out. No, sir, it doesn't happen that way. Even our good deeds are filth before God because it says there's none that do good, does good. We're all sinful. Our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. That, that's at the judgment. But at the judgment, it's going to be, are you washed in the blood of Christ or not? Are you in Christ or not? Are you believing or not? It's Christ or hell. It's repentance. It's turn or burn, like Spurgeon said. And I know that's hard words, but you know, it's right from the Scriptures. Because Jesus said, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Folks, I take that so serious, don't you? Because if Jesus says that, that means I must change. I must, in other words, I must turn from my sins and hate the sin which took Him to that cross. And Jesus spoke to this to Nicodemus. He says, the Son of Man will be lifted up like the serpent. He will be lifted up on the cross. Look to Him and live. But God tells us for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who, what? Believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that man, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It's in your mouth. This is how near it is to you. And in your heart, that is the Word of faith which we preach. And then He tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart, there it is, that God has raised Him from the dead, that you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So you just can't believe in your head, right? It's with the heart. And with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. We must confess that we're sinners. We must confess, I have sinned against the holy God. I I deserve hell. I do not deserve heaven. I've sinned against God. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. And God will grant mercy, if you really mean it. And God will come. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. At the same Lord... Overall is rich to all who call upon Him. And for whoever calls upon on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that calling on God is repentance, folks. Repentance is everything here. Because without repentance, you know, without repentance, there is no gospel. 
That's part of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel that Jesus Christ died, but we must repent from our sin and turn to Him so that we will offer up spiritual worship to Him in our sanctification. And that's regeneration. Then there's sanctification. Salvation, sanctification. That's a great poem I'm going to close with. You know, first before I say that, John 20, 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in His name. This is what, that, this is what the whole Gospel of John's about. Right there. J.C. Ryle, he says, to attend the marriage feast and cleanse the temple from profanation, I'm sorry, were the first acts of our Lord's ministry at His first coming. To purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper will be amongst His first acts when He comes again. Amen? Make sure that you're among those who believe in that. His death, who He is, He's the Messiah, He's the Son of the living God, and He come to seek and save the lost, and He desires to save you today, that you may have life in His name and believe in Him. And then when you believe in Him, He will set you on fire to tell a world about how wonderful Jesus is. Amy Wilson Carmichael put it this way, and I close, I promise. From prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from the, mind, uh, from, from the winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should inspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silking self, O Captain, free thy soldier who would follow thee. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings. Not thus our spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. Oh, I love this next line. From all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, and the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. May it be so with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for this time of worship we've had, singing Your praises, hearing Your Word, hearing the Gospel preached. Lord, it's in Your hands. Lord, You desire, You do not desire any to perish. Lord, You desire all to come to repentance. And those, all that believe in You are those who have been ordained in Your minds and in your decree lord we thank you that the gospel in which we believe is a whosoever gospel that whosoever shall believe and lord we just thank you that we could come to you even as a beggar and in the faith of a child to lay a hold on a strong christ that is so willing to save 
Father, we thank You that the Lord Jesus Christ honored You and obeyed You in keeping the law in every perfect way and fulfilled the law and became our substitute and a sacrifice and died for us in our place on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, now we can trust in His name to bring us right into heaven. But Lord, there's a change that takes place in our life. Oh, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus has come in our heart by faith alone and believe in the gospel. Lord, we praise you for your amazing plan of redemption. We thank you for the redemption that was accomplished and applied. We thank you, Father, for your great love toward us and the goodness that you have shown by sending your one and only Son. And Lord, we look and anticipate in faith the day in which the Lord Jesus will come and at the marriage supper and come back to have a bride that's pure and holy and clean. Oh Lord, cleanse us. Seek, Lord, just may we seek our, look into our own hearts. Search me, O oh God. And see if there be any wicked way in us. May we judge ourselves that we may not be judged. And we praise You. We thank You for those, Lord, as we believe the Gospel, You sanctify us to the end and You hold us, you hold us firm and You keep us by Your power. We thank You for the great love that is found in Your great promises. And we pray and we thank You and we bless Your name. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen.